Okay, what's going on guys? Currently walking through the middle of London, so I apologize for any background noise. London can be very noisy. But I wanted to show you this interview that I recently gave on the Life Are We There Yet podcast. Two amazing guys called Jack and Isaac, young budding entrepreneurs, and they reached out to me and said, um, we'd love to have you on the podcast. And the reason why I'm showing this to you is, this is probably my most authentic, transparent, honest interview that I've ever given. And I kind of wanted to just play it to you. It's about an hour long, but please bear with it because it really takes you on the whole journey of one, how losing my dad to suicide made me feel, how I dealt with it. I talk about how a weird massage turned into a, a life-changing breakthrough. And then I also talk about what I'm currently up to in terms of mental health and in terms of style and everyday life as well. So hopefully you enjoy this episode. Please do check out the Life Are We There Yet podcast as well. Apologize for the wind. Let's dive into it. So Paul, we thought we'd uh, start with you mean to go on um, and look at the tragic, uh, but I imagine very formative experience that has in part shaped who you are today. That is, of course, uh, your dad's suicide. Uh, could you tell us in brief what, what happened back then? Or? Yeah, of course. Um, so it was back in March 2009. And as I've sort of said before, it was very out of the blue. So my dad was someone who had, as I say, everything on paper, psychology degree, full-time engineer, part-time physiotherapy business. It was like an athlete, trained a lot, run a lot, um, family, friends. And yeah, it was just a very sudden breakdown. It was almost like a, just a quick change. Um, I went, again, short story of it, I went around his house because him and my mum had temporarily split up. Went around his house after a work shift at Iceland where I used to work, which is a great supermarket to work in. There are many other supermarkets as well. Um, <laughs> other supermarkets I, are I went, I went to see him and I always explain it as his eyes were very different. Like they seemed very glazed over and he was saying stuff that really didn't make sense. Um, things like, you know, where the money is and... Again, didn't really understand it. Um, and then, yeah, he, he literally reached out to the doctors. Um, the doctor prescribed him some antidepressants. Um, he went back, said it wasn't working, got doubled on the antidepressants, doubled the dose. Um, there was other things that happened, you know, over that time where he, like, called my mum to a car park and had a conversation with her in the car. And, again, none of us really understood it, but... Um, about 10, no, I think it was less than that now. I was talking to my mum about it the other day, about 10 days after he's just break down, he attempted to take his own life for the first time. Um, and it was a horrible time because he, he called in, I don't know how deep we can go into it, but he called okay, in, absolutely fine. Yeah, he called an ambulance and said he was suicidal. The ambulance took him into A&E, um, local to us. I was at work, mum was at work, Steve was at work, my brother, and they left him in A&E. Um, so he got out, walked to the road and stepped in front of a lorry. No, sorry, sorry, stepped in front of a van. Um, and he survived that physically. I don't know how he survived it, but he did. He spent like a week in a coma, came around physically. And then it just had no mental follow-up. Like he, he had a lot of physical follow-ups, but nothing to talk about his depression, which he denied anyway. He didn't, you know, he denied it. Um, and then, yeah, it was just an, we'll go deeper into it, but it was just a six month up and down of him getting better, getting worse. Um, and then, yeah, he eventually took his own life on the 4th of March, 2009. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a hard time. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, 18 years old, it's an incredibly um, important age of time in your life. Just just anyway, regardless of something like that mm. having to happen on top of that. Um, 
so for the next, well, initially afterwards and for the next few years, what was your sort of reaction, your coping method? Did you, do you think you did it in a positive way or did you bottle things up? Or? No, it's always hard. Like, you know, losing, losing a parent or a loved one is always hard. And I never like to compare it, but I always say losing someone to suicide is a lot harder because I didn't know how to grieve. Like, you know, he chose to do it. This is my viewpoint. He chose to do it. So, you know, I shouldn't feel sad for him. I shouldn't feel sad. I should just get on with it. And you're 18. Like I had a massive ego, just literally <laughs> biggest ego you can imagine. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it just everything from like finding out. And then I never forget the moment we, we my dad, um, when he actually did eventually take his life, he was at my nan and granddad's at the time. He'd just come out of the mental health unit. It wasn't right. Um, and I was at work, just started a new job and I, I rung my granddad and said, you know, how's dad? He's fine. Rung him like an hour later. How's dad? He's gone for a walk. And then it's just, it's again, hard to explain, but it's just that moment. I was like, that's it. It's done. Like I knew that was going to happen. Um, so I drove back from work. Mum, we all drove back from work and yeah, he kind of went missing and yeah, walked to like a busy road and stepped in front of a lorry that time. Um, and I never get my granddad and brother coming back after they identified him and was just like, my granddad's like a 93 year old, yeah. old school gent now. Yeah. And then he just said, oh, it's done, you know, it's done. And I just remember punching like the kitchen and then just like, I, cr I cried a lot at the beginning. And then me and my brother went to the fish and chip shop and we're both like there an hour later, like life just goes on. Does, mm. does that make sense? Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. We've literally just both lost our dad's suicide and now we're just- It's, it's such a huge, uh, you know, event yeah. that you almost don't know how to process and it. It's, it's one, and I completely understand people in that state now because obviously like, everything's carrying on around you. Like people serving you fish and chips having no idea that your dad's just took his own life. And mm. then- you know, me and mum went and walked the dog and then people are walking, hi, morning, like the next day. And you're like, hi, morning. Again, not knowing that that's just happened. And yeah, I just kind of, I went clubbing like five days, six days later. People from college came up to me like, why are you here? And I just said, I'm fine. Like, I'm just getting, getting on with it. And yeah, I just, I just bowled it all up. Yeah, trying to sort of sweep it under the rug, you mm, know. Yeah, massively. Not have to, to face up. Mm. Um, so, so, you know, since, since that time, um, uh, have you found that the 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 turning point to, to getting better it was to open up or um when, when did that moment come that you sort of turned things around yeah I think I don't know how long it was but just I did what most men would do is just um distracted myself from it this is what my dad did obviously my dad had a, I don't know exactly but I think my dad had a lot of emotional pain growing up and then just distracted himself from it through you know, there wasn't a moment when my dad sat still, like he would either be working or running or don't know, just doing anything. Um, so that's what I did as I, I left my job, wasn't happy in my job, left my job and started um, an online business. So then again, all of my time and effort goes into that every hour of just like, I want to do this. I want to make my dad proud. Um, yeah, going out clubbing, buying materialistic stuff, clothing, cars, just chasing short-term pleasures mm -hmm. and then yeah it was a it was a it was a time when i was just had i just wasn't happy and i tried talking to many people before um like the counselor at the gp like a private psychologist none of it worked um and then yeah it was this this lady called Anne who she is like when i met her i think she was probably about 65 and my now wife she was the one who told me about her i went there purely for a back problem 
because she she gives don't forget this is, she gives a massage <laughs> right um is that a time as <laughs> um for 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 donations right so amy was like look she can just give a massage holistic massage donations just put money in the pot like you don't have to spend fortunes but she was like she's weird like she's so weird that she'll know more about you than you know about yourself and i was like hmm who is this lady <laughs> so yeah i went i went to see her and yeah she 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 massively helped me because the first time i went in there it's like you walk into this little bungalow and you walk into the room on the right and all the curtains are closed there's oils there music playing and then this like 65 year old woman walks in who's probably about four foot two and yeah she she was the first session she didn't get anything out of me the second session i just got a massage my back hurts da, da, da. third session she was like why are you here and i said oh I'm here for my back. And she said, no, 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 why are you here? And I, it's like this female version of Yoda. I'm yeah, envisaging, oh, you know. <laughs> she's amazing. I still see her today. She's amazing. And um, yeah, I just said, um, my dad killed himself. I don't know how to deal with it. And then I just broke. I was like, flooded here. I think I probably flooded her whole living room, to be honest. So she wasn't a, a trained therapist no. at all. She's just a masseuse. Yeah, I mean, mm. she 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 did a a weekend holistic therapist course. That's all she did, but she was very spiritual. So she she highly believes in, you know, like vibrations and energy and law of attraction and, um, and I was really drawn towards that for some reason. Like looking back now, like as I was I think I was twenty one. Like why was a twenty one year old interested in the law of attraction and energy and vibrations and shit? But um, yeah, I was so drawn towards it, and yeah, she massively, massively helped me. It's interesting that at that sort of um, you know turning point when you met Anne, if I could call it that, you 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 could have gone two ways really. You know, you could have gone sort of sunk further down into um, chasing other things and um, bottling things up, or as you've started to do, you've done something wholly positive. Um, and something beneficial for the sake of others, despite the sort of pain you've had to unfortunately go through. And I think that takes an incredibly strong kind of character to do that. And yet, you know, guys especially, most people still don't, won't and don't talk uh, mm. about about their their emotions, their issues and whatnot. You know, they bottling up, though, it doesn't help anyone, really. No. There, are, there, are, there are no benefits to bottling things up. So... Your advice sort of to, to men, especially, you know, young men our sort of age, you know, 20 to 30, um, who find it tougher to, to express their emotions. What would you advise to sort of for them to, to open up more? Yeah, I think there should be no shame in doing it. Um, like I always say, it's, it's a lot stronger than people think. Like if you open up and talk to someone, it's actually strength, not like a weakness. Um, and the thing that I'm seeing now, and it's, I always say it, it's just completely... I don't know why people don't feel like we can talk about mental health. It's just, you know, if, if, if you came to me in the pub and we're sitting there and you said, you know what, Paul, I'm, I'm actually really struggling. I'm not going to take the piss out of you. <laughs> Does that make sense? Mm. And, you know, all of my friends now, like if I ever sat down one-on-one -on -one with them and spoke to them, they'd all be open to it. But there's just this whole perception of like, they're not going to be, or like they'll judge me. That you're weak that. somehow. Because yeah. Of it, yeah. And there's a funny I've wrote about it in the past about um I went to Malia so like um a lad's holiday <laughs> this was god probably two or three months after my dad died again and it's sort of 10 12 however many of us out there and you're drinking on the plane you're drinking in the airport you drink 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 and then we went to like a bar and in the bar one of my dad's funeral songs came on 
So one of my dad's funeral songs was the Fratelli's Chelsea Dagger, um, which was like as people left because um, we wanted it to be like a celebration. And it came on and every club at that time seemed to be playing it, which never, ever helped. I was like, why have we chosen this yeah. song? Um, and yeah, honestly, after, after, you know, too many sex on the beaches and shots of water down tequila, um, I, I remember this song coming on and my mates who were at the funeral just went, just looked at me and I was like, oh God. And then I just broke and I just ran out of this bar, went and sat on a curb. And I couldn't explain it, but I was having a panic attack. So this was one of my first ever panic attacks. Couldn't breathe, couldn't set myself down. Everything going on around me was just like a blur. And um, the point of this story is a couple of my friends came out um, and they were both like, or there's three of them. And they were like, look, go back to the hotel. We'll come with you. This is the first night in Malia that we've all been looking forward to for the whole year. And they were like, look, we'll come back with you to the hotel room. And I said, no, 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 I want to go out. And then one of them actually said, look, you're having a panic attack. You need to focus on your breathing. I have panic attacks as well. And like, I never knew that. And, you know, and then they were all like, it's, it's completely normal. You've just lost your dad. Like, don't worry about it. I brushed the tears off and then we went out and we had a night out. But the funny thing was the next morning I woke up and I was like, oh, did that actually happen last night? Like, did I actually cry in front of everyone? Um, and then as soon as I got out, was sitting by the pool. The first thing that I did was took the piss out of them. Because it's like, right, my guard's up now. If I start throwing the banter, I show you that I'm all right. And at the same time, um, I'm in charge. Does that make sense? That was always like me. a power play. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was always the one throwing the banter out. And um, then that conversation was never had for years. Like I never went to my one friend and said, you told me you had a, you've been having panic attacks. Like, are you okay? Like that never, ever happened. Until obviously recently I was writing it and I messaged him. <laughs> so do you think if you had gone, um, you know, at that moment, talk to them about it, it would have helped much oh, sooner. Yeah. yeah I, I just don't know what, why I thought that they wouldn't help. I guess peer pressure is a big thing. Yeah. Right? You know, that sort of societal pressure. Yeah. Know, and uh, honestly, in, in, in a, guys, especially in a big group of, you know, yeah. on, a, on a lad's holiday. You know? Yeah. And I think if I could go back to that time, I would always be more open. Or, I'd tell anyone at that time to be more open. It's just, it's just, you know, silly now that we, we can't talk amongst men. And, you know, the suicide rates amongst men are scary. It's the the highest killer, isn't it? Of yeah, biggest of killer of men under the age of 45. Is it? I didn't know as high as that. And in the UK, it's a man takes his own life every two hours. Yeah. Just in the UK, which is a That's tiny little scary. country. Um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, going back to bottling up, I, that's not the sole reason for that statistic, but I think it's probably a big reason. You know? I, I think it's probably certainly why it's it's worse for men than it is women because i feel women don't bottle it up as much yeah. certainly you know so definitely a, a contributing factor to it mm. yeah, so what what do you do now when you're particularly struggling you're having a bad day uh what what, what are your methods good question of coping with it? um i feel like now I, I call it like a toolkit i've got more of a toolkit so um sort of seeing Anne opening up helped a lot but then she kept giving me book after book after book after book i was reading that and then i would try exercising i would try and you know in Amy's will, Amy's will, Amy's, um, that's really bad. When I tell you what I'm going to say, you're going to think will. Um, in Amy's vows to me, my wedding vows. Amy, I hope you're not listening. <laughs> yeah, let's not call it a, a will when we're getting married. Um, she said, oh, she, I'm very obsessed. And she says, I like your obsessiveness. Or I'll always stand by you when you become very obsessed. And that's, that's me. If I, if I find like a nutrition plan, I'm like obsessive, like too obsessed. Um, so I just became obsessed with everything, like trying everything, which helps now. I'm not as obsessed as I used to be. What's um, your sort of obsession at the minute, if mm -hmm. you have one? 
like the current phase yeah work probably just just more you know mental health stuff like you know just that's probably the just obsession. venting it in a positive Which is a better way obsession yeah, yeah, yeah. Than <laughs> alcohol <Yeah>. <laughs> buying yeah, cars better, better than heroin really isn't <laughs> yeah. it? um but you yeah, know so so now for me i've i know what makes me feel good so like one of them is exercise so i have an exercise for two two months right um, because I've been busy with work. And again, excuses. I could have exercised, I just haven't. I went for a run yesterday and I felt amazing. Now I can't walk, I don't feel very good. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so like exercise, um, nutrition. If I eat very, very badly for a long period of time, I just feel like my mental health. It drains you massively yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. You just feel in yourself. Just I always so say like, Ugh. eat shit, feel shit. Yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. know if I swear, but. Um, <laughs> a bit later. <laughs> just beep it. Yeah. Um, Put an explicit warning. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that helps um talking again you know i went to see Anne last week i don't see Anne every week like i used to um i used to see her two times a week as well um but now i probably see her once probably every six weeks um but then there's times when i feel like i need it and i'll go every week again and just being more open about it but it's good that you have that she's you know your sort of anchor point that you can always go back to yeah. even if you're seeing her less you can always sort of no matter how crazy stuff's getting, you can always come back to Anne and yeah. just offload to her. And I, I think it's really important to have at least one person mm. that you can yeah. really let your guard down around yeah, exactly. and be yourself around. Like, everyone so... needs an Anne in their lives. Yeah. <laughs> no, honestly, I cannot, I cannot, I'm so, I'm so grateful for her. She, she was amazing. She helped my mom a lot as well. And yeah, she's, I, I want to get like, we're having this conversation the other day because she hasn't got as many clients as she used to. And she's just very much, she just believes it happens because it happens. And she's 72, I think now. And um, she's like, I don't really know what I want to be doing now. And I was like, I've got ideas. <laughs> we'll do like a show together. <laughs> I, I feel like even if you don't particularly believe in the whole spirituality thing and sort of energies and law, law of attraction and that sort of thing, it, it's certainly a much more positive way of living. Yeah. You know, even even I think anyone has to concede that you know, it's, it's a really refreshing way to live. Yeah, it's exactly. much, much less stressful, I think. I, I've seen the whole over attraction thing in different lights and, you know, I'm not all one just, if you imagine it, you're going to get it. I don't believe that's true, but I, I, I believe it puts you in... Ferrari, Ferrari, Ferrari. <laughs> Ferrari. <laughs> I believe it, like you say, it puts you in that positive mindset. Like if, if I can feel like I'm going to get it and I feel happier, like it's going to attract more. And it's, I always say the best way of explaining it in terms of the way I see it is if you wake up bad, and you start your day bad, your whole day is going to be bad. But if you start your day well, you know, it's going to follow on from there. And I think that's what I use the law of attraction for. So do you feel like um, a lot of your coping mechanisms uh, seem to be more habitual in nature? Or um, mm. is it forcing yourself to to do certain things Good out question. of your comfort zone? Amazing question. Um, I would like to say they're, they're habits, but I don't think they are. <laughs> um, I'd like to say that I just, oh yeah, I just do this because I'm you know, the best. Um, but no, um, Guru Paul, <laughs> Guru Paul just wakes up in the morning routine, <laughs> make myself a fresh brew. I don't know if you've seen my morning routine. Tea, whatever it's yeah. No, I mean, it, I have to force myself to do it. I think, you know, every day changes. We've had like a lot of changes as well. We moved house and, you know, being a dad as well, you never know what time the kids are going to wake up or what they're doing or, um, and yeah, I would like to say that I do them every single day just without foul, but I have to force myself to do them sometimes. You shouldn't feel guilty though when you don't manage to do it. No. You know, because if you if you really beat yourself up because you're not sticking to that habit every day of every week, you know, of every month, then it's it's not the end of the world. Yeah. And I think that's 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 advice that I always give as well now is when I was in that darker time, I wanted to be the best. So like I was 
you know, my, my, I don't know. It's hard to say that I was depressed. I, I, I was never diagnosed as depressed because I ran away from that diagnosis. So like the doctor said I was depressed and I was like, no, I'm not because I didn't want to be like my dad. Um, only because everyone used to say, you're so like your dad, you're so like your dad. So then my biggest fear still is that I'll end up like my dad. Um, and he was like, you're depressed, you need to take antidepressants. And I just ran away from that diagnosis. Uh, I don't know how much of it was just grief because the, the symptoms of grief and depression are very, very similar. Um, so I don't know whether I was just grieving very badly or I was depressed. But yeah, in that dark moment when like I didn't really want to leave the house or get up or do anything, um, I was trying to do too much. So like you say, I was like, right, I need to go to the gym and work out for an hour. And then I just would never do it because it's too much of a goal. Whereas then the, the reason why I got out of it is because I'd started to set smaller goals. So like every morning I'm going to get up, I'm going to do 10 press-ups. I'm going to do sort of like a minute of just jogging on the spot. Um, and then rewarded myself every time I did little goals. And then it just kind of mounts up and mounts up. Yeah, because if you set yourself unrealistic goals that you then don't achieve, it becomes cyclical because yeah. you don't think, oh, my next goal has to be even bigger than that because I didn't achieve that previous yeah. one. And, it's, it's, and then you never achieve any exactly. goals. Exactly. And it's, it's a scary cycle as well because I just used to beat myself up. Like, oh, we are going to do a workout at the gym for an hour. I don't go to the gym. I feel worse than when I woke up because I'm now beating myself up about that. And it just sort of spirals and then you get deeper and deeper and... Yeah, it's, it's hard. So I think that's definitely good advice. Do you have, see, so your dad was on antidepressants mm. leading up to his death. Do you have any strong views on the mm. use of antidepressants? I think I saw one of your YouTube videos was tackling the, the subject. Yeah, I've, I've got like um, mixed views on it. Yeah. I, I, I never, so I did a video the other day and it got a few hateful comments. Um, now, my viewpoint on antidepressants when my dad died is that no one should take them. They're dangerous and they killed my dad. That was my whole viewpoint on them. Then with time, I started to realize that, you know, there is a place for antidepressants and, you know, medication for mental health in particular. You know, a lot of people do need it. And saying this, when my dad was in the mental health unit, he was heavily prescribed and they test different drugs to kind of see which works and which doesn't. And when he came out, he did seem better. But I don't know how much of that was his medication just numbing the pain. And, you know, I, I don't, I, again... Uh, we wasn't we wasn't given enough information to know what medication he was taking, like how important it just was. Kept in the dark a bit with it. Yeah, honestly, I, when he when he left the mental health unit, I, I couldn't tell you how many medication, how many pills he was taking, what he was taking, or when he was taking them. So I don't even know if he was taking them. I don't know whether that could have helped. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a place for them. The 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 main issue that I've got is that they're seen as a one size fits all, and um, they're seen as just this is this is the cure take it and see how it goes. Yeah, we did an episode a couple of weeks back with my dad, who's a doctor, specifically on sort of mental health from yeah. a doctor's point of view. And, and what he said, which I think was particularly true, is that it's a, a tool in the toolkit. You know, it's not yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like you said, it's not mm -hmm. the, It's not a happy pill. Your dad sounds like a good doctor. Oh, don't say, say <laughs> that. You think your ego is bigger. <laughs> no, I mean, he, I think, as you say, it's, I don't know if it's the doctor's, I, I don't know the ins and outs and, you know, but a lot needs to change because... Um, too many people are, I think it was a million prescriptions for antidepressants are a week, mm -hmm. every week. Well, I remember going to the doctor and, um, and sort of glancing over at the computer screen and it said, um, there was a big warning label that said young person on antidepressants. And I thought, oh God, that's me, isn't it? <laughs> what am I going to do? Oh wow, but, really? Yeah, yeah. But, um, 
I guess I guess it is a bit of a. Um, so this was when you was taking them. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then you walk into the doctors, and then that pops up on the screen. Yeah, I sort of just went in. Um, I probably shouldn't have seen the screen, but I yeah. did anyway. Yeah, um, yeah he wasn't er- like Isaac. Look yeah. at this. <laughs> Everyone looks at the screen. <laughs> it just shows you that it is a, a massive issue. Oh wow! Amongst young people, do you still take them now? Yeah, yeah. yeah you, we're both on. Them. Do you, you find of, that they help? Uh, I I personally do. They've they've for me they've gotten me. I think they're sort of plateaued now, but they certainly. Mm. I was at a, a, a really low point. And now I'm at a much more manageable yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's sort of peaked off now, but I, mm. I'm glad I've been taking them. I honestly just feel like there's, there needs to be more done, like research, and because it's it's a guessing game. I don't, did, did you get given one and it worked for you, or did you go on many? So um, I, I was given Prozac, uh, which is um, like serotonin. Yeah. Thing. So it's just a sort of a chemical imbalance, sort of boost your mood. So I think they had a fairly good idea of which would work. So they mm. sort of you know try this and hopefully it'll. And unfortunately, it did. But yeah, I, I, I guess see, I see what you mean. Though. Yeah. Because, because especially with mental health, there are so many different diagnoses. You don't really always know which one's going to help and certain yeah. drugs mm-hmm. help certain people. And I think what needs to be done more of is, um, so when my dad went into the doctors, he was a green light because a green light simply meant that my dad felt depressed, but he had a family, he had a home, he had a job. So that makes him less of a risk. And that's what needs to change because everyone who walks in feeling suicidal or feeling down should all be treated the same because that's the people like my dad who are slipping through the net, like men under 45, young people as well. You know, like you said, Mm -hmm. you know, young people are going in there and the doctor and people aren't worried about them because they've got their whole life in front of them or they've got, you know, a lot going for them. Same with my dad. Oh, he's got a lot going for him. He's not going to end his own life. So I think it just needs... I, I've got no, I definitely think that we do need antidepressants and medication for mental health. It's just we need a lot more alongside that. Yeah, because the people that are in that, those sort of mental states, they they get very good at hiding the signs of it, you know, yeah. putting up a front. And yeah. and that's why, it obviously, sadly, yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. it's often that, too late before it. And that's, that's, again, that's why it's so hard to treat. And I'm, when, so I had a lot of, I still do. You know, the, the way that my dad was treated, I, I, I strongly believe he could still be alive if he was treated differently. Um, but I've accepted that in a way um, because it is so hard to treat. And there's not enough resources and research out there. But, you know, things like him being picked up in an ambulance and left in a that should never happen mm-hmm. if someone rings up and says they're suicidal. Um, then, you know, loads of loads of other stuff happen around that time. Um you know, the other time, a few days before he actually ended his own life, again, he was really, really bad. We rung an ambulance. Ambulance came and had no record of him being in the mental health unit. And he was literally in there for like two or three months, just gone. Um, they took him to South End Hospital when I was like, can you not take him to Bazardon, which is the other hospital where my dad was in the mental health unit? No, we've got to take him here first. Um, I followed down in the car. Um, he tried jumping out of the ambulance three times. Um, as I got into Annie, he was sitting there on his own again. And it was just like, everything was playing out again. Luckily I came there. Um, they were like, do you want to take him to the mental health unit? And I was like, if he's tried jumping out the ambulance three times, I think I'll give that a miss. Um, and then, yeah, when he was let out, he was let out on a physical assessment, not a mental assessment because it was the weekend. There wasn't anyone to assess him. Um, so there was a lot of things that did go wrong. Um, but, you know, I've, I've accepted that and I just feel like, you know, more needs to be done because it's just an issue that's getting out of hand now. Yeah, I think because the system's so stretched, mm. the way it is, it, it 
people very quickly can become statistics on a page or, yeah. you know, you know, patient such number, such and such yeah. rather than uh, it, it sort of dehumanizes in a way Yeah, because they've got quotas to meet and they've got, you know, deadlines to meet and, and yeah. this and that. And, and they are, I, I'm not saying there weren't mistakes. I, I agree with you. I reckon that probably could be alive, but, yeah. but, but they're so stretched. It is, it's such a difficult Massively. kind of uh, balancing act. I think. Yeah. And I, I just, you know, and, and like you said, that weekend, my dad was let out because he told them that he wasn't going to end his own life. You know, he was very clever at that point of saying, I just want to go home to my family. Like, I just want to be with my family, which is his way of saying, I want to go out and do what, you know, he eventually did. But that's why it's so hard to treat. Because if you've got someone standing there saying that and you cannot see anything like on a scan, or you, you just, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's hard. I think it's, it's when you put in such a clinical environment, um, despite what you're actually feeling, I think, there is a, a desire to get out. And I think if I was stuck in a hospital for any amount of time, I'd want to get out. So, yeah. you know, no you'd one likes being in hospital. <laughs> bend the truth slightly. But, but again, that's, that's such a good point. And this is what I was saying to someone the other day. Again, I feel like my dad probably just needed someone to hold his shoulder and say, look, you're going to be all right. Just this is what you need to do. Whereas the approach that he got was his an antidepressant. He never ever took a paracetamol for a headache. He was very holistic as well. So now all of a sudden he's taken these antidepressants. Then he has his accident, comes around, probably embarrassed, like didn't, he always said, I didn't do it. It was the medication. So he blamed it on the medication because one of the side effects is of antidepressants, is suicidal thoughts within the first two weeks. Um, and then all of a sudden he's now in a mental health unit. And as you said, we went and visited my dad every day when he was in this mental health unit and the environment's not a nice place to be. So he was, he was sectioned. Mm. Yeah. So when he came out, he sort of come home because his physical injuries, are, you know, he was, he, he basically had a brain bleed. So then he was in hospital for about three weeks, came home and just wasn't right again. So then, yeah, he ended up getting sectioned um, and he sectioned himself. And yeah, I just feel like the environment that he was in, in this mental health unit, it's a scary place for us to go and visit, let alone, you know, stay. Oh yeah, I mean, um, not for myself, but um, as a visitor to a mental health unit, is it's scary. I mm. mean, we were just stood there, and this guy just like stood intimidatingly looking at us and stuff, and you know, we were just visiting. You yeah, know, it must be quite a quite an experience know, to be in there. And again, I just feel like if that was me, like as a dad now, and you know, if I ended up in the unit that he was in. I would probably write myself off. I'd probably feel like I'm done now. Does that make sense? It's like, mm -hmm. how have I ended up here? You'd probably start to judge yourself. And and yeah, you know, it, it was always hard, hard because my dad was such an easy patient because he would just sit doing crosswords, building things and just keep himself to himself. Whereas as you've said, there was patients just, you know, chasing around. Mm -hmm. You know, he was bunking with a guy who was schizophrenic and... Um, he actually got removed from the unit um, because he was just too hard to handle. And again, yeah, he we were we were there. He was there in Christmas, and we spent Christmas in there. And to, to be honest with you, he was it was such a shame to see him because he came out with photos of him traveling around Thailand and stuff. And now you look at him, and he was just no reflection of who that person was before. And yeah, it's, it's a horrible place to be. And the thing is, people when you hear about things like that, 
a lot of because it's easier a lot of the times the natural reaction is to pretend it's it's not there and mm-hmm. i think that's one of the importance of, of opening up the conversation even though it's uncomfortable to hear it needs to be had yeah because otherwise people are going to carry on going in their day-to-day life because it it doesn't affect them always yeah. but then it, it and then it's too late and it suddenly does affect them and something like that happens yeah and, and you wish oh i wish that the conversation was being had well, I think now's the time to start. Yeah, to start making. And it's and it's like we didn't know how to deal with it. Like, I didn't. I didn't even know this unit was there, and it was like literally ten minutes from my house because it's at the back of the hospital. Um, so yeah, we didn't have any idea about mental health, and I still strongly believe that people don't know enough about it. And that's kind of all. All that needs to be done is there needs to be more of a, like you said, a conversation. So then, if because again, people say it's never going to happen to us, but it might happen to you and you need to know how to do it. It doesn't have to be groundbreaking. I was talking to, to Isaac on, in the car on the way down. You know, the more you talk, even in, just pre- prevent it bottling up, prevent it building and boiling over. If, if it's all you're ever feeling anxious, you're having, you know, mental health issues, talk it before it gets out of hand. Yeah. Because it, it all, you know, it all sort of um, subdue. Mm-hmm. Whereas if, if you let it build, that's when it boils over and by then it's often too late. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So like um, in, an, in an ideal world, um, you know, talking aside, you know, with, with all the money in the world with the NHS and stuff, what, mm. what would you say, what would you have them do to, to properly treat these kind of patients? Um, mm, a lot, but I just, I just feel like a frontline probably needs more education mm-hmm. on it. So like um, an initial defense mechanism against yeah because the, the way that frontline is dealing with these patients now is isn't working um so like i said there's there's some stuff being done in terms of treating everyone equal so my dad wouldn't have been a green light my dad would have been treated exactly the same and given probably help that he needed um so things like that and also just more compassion again it, i don't think it's it's I'm not quite, groundbreaking. It's just yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. basic, you know, I, human rights and like Anne. You know, Anne's got no no qualifications, no, no nothing. But she just could listen, and also she'd been through a lot, so she can relate. If that makes sense, so she knows um, the advice to give. And not saying that every doctor needs to learn compassion, but I just feel like just listening, because a lot of the times they've got a five. How how long does your dad normally have? Five. Not a lot. I was just going to say the problem is, you know, one of the key things is listening, and they just don't have the time. The time. Exactly. And they, so it needs it needs to become less stretched. Yeah. I think. So with that sort of in place, I think that they should. Again, what I'm finding when I'm speaking to a lot of like university counselors and stuff is they're like, "We'll do our job," but then we've got we don't know where to send them. Like we don't know. We'll send them to calms or something like that, and. There's a waiting list. It's so easy to get lost in the system. Yeah, for like eight months. Yeah, I, I speak to someone the other day. She's she had an attempted suicide and she's still been waiting like nine months for a therapy session. And that's just scary. So I just feel like, yeah, more needs to be done in place. And also more of like a tailored approach. So I just wish the doctor said to my dad, like, what do you enjoy doing? Because then my dad would have said, I enjoy running. Okay, when was the last time you went for a run? Oh, you know, I haven't been for a week because I've been feeling like this. Yeah, I think that's you know? that sort of tailored intimate approach is is key going forward and yeah time is something that is vital for that yeah you know so you can construct this plan that's i I don't know patient-centered rather than Mm. again just another statistic walking through the door you know you have a uh, an individual plan for each page but then that's uh, so difficult to do because of the time constraints so they just need more time i I think think, like you say everyone says they need more money 
I had a very interesting conversation with um, a lady called Kate who um, sort of fronts the Sure Mind Foundation, which is a really good foundation. And she said, it's not that they need more money. It's just the time it filters down, like it's being spent wrongly. So the time it gets to where it needs to be, there's not enough. So I don't know whether it's more funding or just better use of that money. Mm. Um, it's just too much paperwork, really. But this isn't yeah. a, an anti-NHS. <laughs> you know, the NHS are great. I mean, yeah. I had a recent experience with my brother, and they 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 you know they saved his life basically. So it's a great system. And really my is. wife works for them, and my mother-in-law works for them. So big up the NHS. <laughs> <laughs> um, now onto your passion, which is which is fashion, I, I, mm. I believe. Um, Way wrong. <laughs> but um, firstly, how has how has fashion helped you? Do you think? Um, uh, was it the main, mainly the fashion ventures that you see that set you on a positive track into yeah. getting better? Or I mean, if you if we would have had this interview like six months ago, I'd have been like, no, <laughs> I hate fashion. Um, but as we've said, you know, I I started a fashion business nine years ago and then started to write about it. Um, got interested in it. I always denied it. I was always like, I'm never that interested in it. But Again, looking back, I think I was. I always wanted to dress well. I mean, I saw your, your, on your website, you have a sort of 10 things about me. And you say that you used to sell, uh, you buy yeah, clothes yeah, yeah. on eBay and then sell them yeah. sell them to yeah. mates at school for yeah. a, when for I was, a wheeler dealer from yeah, an early age. I always age. was, yeah. So I used to buy. But also into fashion. <laughs> <laughs> I always used to buy, um, there was a tracksuit at the time, academics and like these tracksuits that everyone wanted. And this was at a time when you had to be 18 for an eBay account. So I was like, Mom, can I have borrow your card and set you up an account? And this was at a time when we had dial-up internet as well. So I was like, Dad, get off the phone. I want to set up an eBay account. Um, but yeah, I used to buy them. And then I think I sold it to my friends for like £3 extra or something stupid like that. But then, yeah, I eventually then started to buy um, certain polo shirts from China um, with a crocodile on them. Um, they were hmm. authentic. Um, no, and then I used to sell them on eBay, sell them to my friends. And then um, I was doing that all the way up until when I left my job. So I left my job and I just thought, you know what, I can't scale this up anymore. Um, so then I started to sell accessories, like men's accessories, and then really got into the fashion industry then. So what are you doing fashion-wise now in terms of, is it mainly modeling or is it the magazine or? Not a lot, to be honest. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so I started the online retailer and then I started to write for a lot of blogs and then I set up the magazine. The magazine essentially was like a satellite site. I just thought, if I'm writing for all of these blogs, um, so every blog post that I would write, I'd include like a scarf or a watch um, that I sold. So then I set up the magazine and the whole aim of it was to say like, here's a magazine, here's brighterman.com, which is what it was called. Um, and it looked separate. It didn't look like just me and my mum's house, like in my bedroom, working on both of them. And then the magazine started to make money and it was better money. So um, I wanted to travel around that sort of time. And I remember someone saying, can I pay you a hundred pounds to add a banner to your website? And I just thought, you know, I have to probably sell like 20 pairs of socks to make a hundred pounds. Um, so yeah, I kind of then wrote more and more content about it, met some of the YouTubers um, and always wanted to do videos, but I just had a huge fear around doing it. I believe it or not now, like <laughs> I do videos wherever. Um, but at the time I put it off for years and years and years and then started to do YouTube videos around style. Um, so when did you start doing YouTube roughly? I started doing YouTube, I did two style videos. One was how to tuck in a shirt 
which is one of my most popular videos, which shows how dumb men are. Um, well, I mean, <laughs> Isaac and I are both wearing shirts, <laughs> neither of which are tucked in currently. So, so you have a to learn. And again, I just looked at like, Ar- you know, Aaron Marino, some of the big guys looked at their most popular videos and that was one of them. So I did my own. I did another video on shoes and then I just thought this isn't for me. So I started to do self-improvement videos. And the reason why I did that is I was working with a mentor at the time and he says, you just need to get over this fear of just creating content. He says, literally just grab a camera, do one take, upload it to YouTube. So what I started to do is I used to sit on my dining room table with like a gorilla pod, put my camera on it and just do like a one take video. So um, I had to go over guilt. I did one on depression. I did one on my dead suicide. Um, I did loads and loads and loads. But I was still focused on the numbers back then. So some of them have got really good views. And I still get, I had a message earlier today actually said, I saw your video on guilt and it's really helped me da, 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 and it's so rewarding, but I was chasing the numbers back then. So I started to do style videos cause that's where the, the views were. Um, and I think I started that maybe about two years ago. Um, and it was growing and growing and growing and growing and it was doing really well. And then I just, again, I think I just go through these obsession stages. I was yeah. like, I just <laughs> not into this anymore. So I want to just do mental health videos. So I stopped doing style videos, started to publish mental health videos on that channel. And it just bombed. Like I was just losing views. I lost, I think I lost 5,000 subscribers by letting them know that I was doing mental health videos. You're perhaps touching on, well, you definitely are touching on something that was more meaningful. Exactly. Um, and, yeah. and perhaps help a lot more people out. I mean, we all want to dress more stylishly. Yeah. Um, me included. <laughs> well, if you can, <laughs> too, like if, you, if you can help, you know, one person out who's at a really low point, I think that's more worthwhile than helping 10 people decide what the best scarf to wear is. Yeah, you know? exactly. And, and someone said that that's what, that's why I changed because someone said to me, imagine you standing on a stage and talking to 20,000 people about five casual essentials to wear to a date. Or imagine you stand on a stage and speaking to a thousand people about depression or suicide. And I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. But I learned from that mistake because I think you saw my videos from the style stuff. Yeah, yeah. I've been following you for quite quite a while. Yeah. So, that sounds weird, but... <laughs> so, um, Stalker. <laughs> definitely not as good looking in real life. Um, so um, I think that was then the thought that I had a couple of... A month or two ago is one... As soon as I stopped making style videos and was like, style's not important, just focus on your mental health, my mental health started to come down because I was letting myself go a little bit. Um, so I completely sort of neglected how important it was to me originally, and it still is. And secondly as well, um, I was speaking to Aaron about it, Aaron Marino. He's one of the biggest YouTubers. And he says he's still got the same purpose as me. He wants to help men. He wants to like make them feel better about themselves. And you can still do that through style videos and, you know, confidence kind of. So what, what, what sort of percentage would you say now would you be aiming for to cover? How much would you cover sort of mental health stuff and how is that, you know, how much style stuff would you do? Opposed yeah. to that? So I set up a new channel for the mental health stuff that I haven't really done much about. Um, now I'm starting to do more style stuff, but it's just trying to get those numbers you up again. You can share this on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just trying to get the numbers up on that again. Um, but I'm doing a lot more stuff on Facebook for mental health. I would honestly say, because the magazine's still there, the magazine's the business, the magazine makes the money. Again, that's kind of, it was hard for me because a brand, being completely honest with you guys, a brand would come to me and say, we've got X amount of money to do a sponsorship video with you. Um, would you be willing in doing it? 
you know, the money's good. I don't want to turn the money down, but now I'm talking about mental health. So how can I try and integrate a fragrance brand into a mental health video? Especially without seeming sort of exploitative, you know, yeah. like this cologne will get yeah, rid yeah, of your yeah. depression. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like the or smell of pine, actually, but it's not. Um, and that was kind of, I, I was, you know, the magazine is now a business. And before the magazine was a passion. So now the magazine's a business, it makes me money, which allows me to then, um, you know, not charge for the mental health stuff I do. I create a lot of content around mental health on Facebook. Like honestly, a lot of content. And that's really the platform that's helped me, you know, I checked the other day, I think it's over half a million views in the last six months just on mental health videos. YouTube isn't the platform for mental health. I've found anyway. But um, so yeah, kind of, it's probably a balance of, I'd say, 70% mental health, 30% style at the moment. If we can just look at um, the actual fashion side of it a little bit more detail, because I feel that fashion and style are things that obviously are beneficial to a person's self-esteem. You know, if you feel like you look good, um, mm. you sort of walk around with more self-confidence with that swagger. But I, th I think it can sometimes be quite toxic, you know, the, the fashion world, because if, if you feel that you look good, you're often more self-confident. But that feeling often is coming as a result of the current trends or, or, you know, these changeable fads that come and go with that season's line of clothing or, you know, that particular brand of, of, of trainers. And if you can't access that for, for whatever reason, say price point or, you know, you've missed the boat, then you can feel quite left out with it. Mm. And the fact that you, you're not able to get that fashion, that that somehow is a reflection on your worth. So do you think it's more of just um, striking a balance between the two, that it's not the end of the world if you can't get this, but still, you know, um, you, you, like sort of tout and push the stuff that you think is fashionable and good because it could give someone, you know, more of a, a, a boost in their self-esteem? Yeah, and I think that's, that's, that's what I did wrong, is I, it helped me a lot with confidence. So like you say, if I dress well and I feel good and I get a compliment, it makes me feel good. But then that compliment was very short-lived because I still felt, you know, bad inside. But what I did wrong is when I was with my mates, I felt like I was overdressing. So again, this is just, I think this is just a male dynamic. We're all going to a nightclub. We all wear the same thing. Like, you don't want to be the one guy wearing a blazer when everyone else is just wearing a shirt because you're going to get some, why are you wearing that? Like we're only going to this. But what was happening is I would, I would try and experiment a little bit more with my mates. So I'd go out and I'd wear a shirt as soon as I walk in. What are you wearing? Da, da, da. But People always used to say, by the end of the night, they'd be asking you where you got that shirt from because they'll want to buy it as well. Um, so that was my dynamic. I was always a people pleaser. I didn't want to be the guy standing out in front of my mates. So I used to dress it down with them. Then what I would do is go to events like Fashion Week and I would dress up, but I'd then be comparing myself to the guys that were above me. Does that make sense? So I'm wearing like this suit. I feel good standing next to a guy who's like, completely chiseled looks like he's just been made wearing like this Savile Row suit that's like six grand and I'm just mm, I don't feel good enough again so it's that so was it's being confident in your own look and just and, and, dressing and, for yourself yeah like, not worrying about what other people yeah. think and I think as soon as I started to work on my inner game like my mental health I started to dress better anyway because it's kind of I always say that effortless elegance like you can chuck a suit on you feel good and you pull it off a lot better but there's a lot of guys who will chuck a suit on you can tell that they're not confident because you know they're checking themselves in every mirror or you know they're just nervous or just body from um, work, you know body exactly posture yeah. so I feel like now I, I feel like I'm dressing for myself it's a lot more you know i'm dressing for me so i could wear you know t-shirt and jeans come out and feel all right but i could also probably wear a suit and you know still feel quite confident to do it as well 
Um, so now to the most important question. Who do you think's dressed better out of both of us? There's a lot riding on this in the car on the way down. All I can see is the top half. Well, well, well I mean, the bottom half's just jeans. Just and jeans. Shoes. These <laughs> shoes are really shoes old. Were very boring. <laughs> shoes make a big... Oh, he's, he's looking at the shoes. Oh, your shoes are way better. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so I will go your shirt. Thank you. We've both got the same sort of jeans on. Your shoes. Oh, that's a very diplomatic answer. That's what we like. <laughs> you, <laughs> so you look at the way you the yeah. people pleaser. Look at the cogs wearing <laughs> there, trying to please both of us. Yeah. Um, you're, you're trying to, you know, we've touched on mental health, we've touched on on fashion, but you're trying to to find a way to link the two, or at least a, a certain way to link the two. And you've just uh, launched your clothing line. My mind, I can never say. Apparel, apparel, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Know, apparel, yeah, apparel. Yeah. Um, that makes it sound more posh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, what's the kind of idea behind that? You know, does, yeah. does fashion have a part to play in breaking down the stigma? So, I um, like I say, nine years ago, my first business was an online retail business, and I loved online retail. Then I didn't like online retail because I wanted to travel. I didn't want to go post office every day. Um, so then the magazine was my main focus. Then I started to um, teach online retail at London College of Fashion. So I do a bit of lecturing as well. Um, I've done a lot of public speaking on online retail and I'm always giving people advice. And students come to me. Again, that's a big part of my business is digital consultancy. So consultancy for fashion businesses that want to do well online. And I just get excited just seeing people's businesses and breaking it down and being like, you should do this on social media. And um, so I always wanted to go back into online retail. And I've been playing with it for a couple of years. One of the ideas I wanted to do was again, accessory store, but like higher end luxury stuff. And again, got very down the line of it. Um, but then just for, I'm, I haven't got time to do it. So this came at a perfect time because I want, I've always wanted to get back to online retail, but the only reason why I would have done it is, is for the money. Like I just wanted to make more money. And that's the only reason why I would have started it. Whereas this has a lot more meaning to it. It's online retail. I'm looking forward to getting it started. But, you know, there's no, I've got no, um, have about, like, at the moment, I don't want to make money from it. It's literally just to one, spread awareness and two, to raise sort of money for, for mental health charities. So a, a, a proportion of the, the sale money goes to yeah. which charity? So um, this, the whole aim of it is there'll be various different collections. The first collection is this one here. So it's just t-shirts and sweatshirts for men. Women can wear them as well if they want to pull it off. Um, and every t-shirt sweatshirt from the collection funds a conversation on Calm Suicide Hotline. Um, so, you know, meeting with them today, I had a meeting with them a little while ago. They do some amazing stuff. It's Campaign Against Men Living Miserably. They did the Project 84. I don't know if you saw with the guys on the ITV tower um, or the, the guys, the statues. Um, they do some amazing campaigns all about male suicide. And um, so, yeah, it costs them £7 for a conversation on their hotline for someone who needs it. So, yeah, every every purchase goes to £7 goes towards calm. So it's that whole, like, the it's at the end of the day, there's a lot more to the T-shirt. It's made from 100% organic cotton and all of this. <laughs> but it's, you're, you're buying a T-shirt. Yeah, it would be a bit, if you, you know, if you're making these mental health T-shirts and some kid is sweating in a, in a sweatshop in Bangladesh, that is probably a bit, <laughs> exactly. bit hypocritical really, isn't it? Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's plenty of other things to it, but it's just, um, you're buying, it's not just a T-shirt. This is the whole marketing behind it. It's not just an item of clothing. It's you funding a conversation that needs to be had. And then the whole aim of it is that we want to get more men wearing it and then speaking their strength. 
So um, doing videos of sort of moments that they've struggled and being very open and honest about it. Because what I found is when I talk about my story, people come running up and like they then start sharing. The funniest one was when I was in Atlanta at Aaron Marino's and Antonio's event called, um, it used to be called StyleCon, now it's Menfluential. I, I, I got up on the second day, the last speaker and spoke about depression and suicide. And before that, everyone was talking about style, grooming, like facing fears and all of this. And the first day everyone spoke to me, not everyone, but majority of the audience spoke to me because I was mingling. Second day, people were speaking to me, I stood up on stage, said about my dad's suicide, my depression. Now all of a sudden people start opening up. I had guys crying, just saying that I felt like you was talking to me. I've attempted, I've been there. And I've always said, if people can start talking, it's going to give permission's not the right word, but it almost gives people permission to talk back. Um, so the idea is, is like more men can wear this, share their story. And it's that ripple effect. Like you buy this t-shirt, you, my sales pitch is coming on here. You, it's a very nice t-shirt. <laughs> you buy this t-shirt, you fund a conversation. But at the same time, if you share it, you could potentially fund free more. Does that make sense? I think it's a fantastic idea. So it's that whole ripple effect and just getting it more out there. And um, it's there's there's plenty more details to it. It's a very simple logo. On the back, you can't see it on the quote. It's got, don't be ashamed of your story. Let it inspire others, which is one of my favorite quotes. Um, the tag says, conquer from within. Um, it says you've obviously funded a suicide hotline call. Then everyone gets um, three different cards. So in the package themselves, they get free cards. On the front, it says, do you know what the biggest killer of men under the age of 45 is? And on the back, it's got suicide. And then it says, I am, and then we write your name. And then it says, I funded a conversation on the suicide hotline. You can too. Um, speak your strength. And that's kind of the whole campaign that we want to run from it. But long-term visions for this is the first collection will be for Calm. And then we'll do various different charities after that. So we might do one for Papyrus, which is, um, you know, young suicide. And we might do like a kid's range. We might do like a, a parent so range. So there'd be a particular sort of fashion or theme to each collection. Exactly. Know, each so charity. Every collection would be different. Everyone will raise money for a different charity. You know, we might do one that's based around people struggling from eating disorders or OCD. And it all raises money for different for different charities. That's, that's brilliant. I think... That, that really makes you stand out as well as, you know, from, from other clothing brands mm. and, and provides that message that people will get behind. Yeah. And I think a lot of... We're certainly behind it. Yeah, oh, yeah. So two, two customers already. <laughs> um, but again, two customers, two conversations. You exactly. Know? Um, T-shirts are £125 each. No, I'm joking. No, they're not. <laughs> Maybe they're not. not. <laughs> oh, I've lost a customer. <laughs> no, I think, we, I think they're going to retail about sort of £30 a T-shirt. And then, um, like I say, they're all organic cotton. So it's, I'm, I'm losing money on, on, the, on the collection because obviously it's low quantities. But as more people, um, as more people sort of buy it, hopefully it can start to break even and we can start to fund that back in. Um, but what was the point I was going to make? You was going to say something. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of brands give like 10% to charity, 20% to charity. And I just don't think it has that meaning behind it. Like it's I was just like a token gesture. Really, yeah, isn't it's it, almost like they do it to, 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 seem, to be seen to be doing it. Yeah. yeah, and it's good. It's great. I'd rather people give like 10%, 20% to charity. But as a marketing strategy, I don't think that's enough now. Yeah, yeah. I think people use it as a marketing. I, I, yeah, um, I bought a beer in a pub the other day. A strange story, I know. Lads. <laughs> but um, uh, but as, like a certain amount of money was going to charity from from each pint. Really? And it, was, it was 5p. And you just think, come on, you can spare a bit more than 5p. <laughs> what charity? Pip. Do you know what charity Every was? little helps. It was like a, it was like a local brewery um, that um, 
Uh, say brewery again. <laughs> I can't say it. Neither can I. But um, yeah, there's some guy died in the local sort of town, so it was it was about that and uh, raising yeah. money for that. But five p. Yeah. <laughs> Depends what pub though. You know, <laughs> it could be a lot of beers. But yeah, I, yeah, I agree. Get you nothing in London. <laughs> yeah, I think like you say, a lot of people use it as, and a lot of big brands have done it. You know, Top Man do it, River Island do it, and it's great. But you know, a lot of celebrities talk about mental health, but I just feel like it's around Awareness Week and then it's just all forgotten about very yeah. quickly. Um, it's almost when it's, if you're part of the pun, fashionable, you know, yeah. to talk about. Yeah, and, and again, talking about mental health, I feel like it is at the moment. I feel like it's a huge trend that more and more people are talking about, but I feel, I always say awareness is great. All the videos I do is all about awareness, but prevention is more important. So I feel like, you know, there's there's no, like Awareness Week, I saw it at like nine times the amount of shares than the year before. So it's huge in comparison to what it used to be. But like they say, awareness is pointless unless there's prevention in place. So that's kind of the aim. Brilliant, yeah. So, um, you know, uh, along with my mind apparel um, and other things, what are your plans for the future, your personal or business ambitions? What, what have you got going on? Um, yeah, a lot. I think I've learned a lot over the past. I don't know if you follow, do you guys follow Gary Vaynerchuk? Yeah, I've seen his stuff. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's someone that I've been watching for years, and the thing is with Gary Vaynerchuk is he just says he says the same stuff over and over and over and over and over again, and he even admits that he says the same stuff over and over again. Mm -hmm. But he always spoke about patience and macro and micro, which again I had no idea what he was talking about, and I had to hear it over and over and over and over again. And then the biggest reason why that wasn't working for me because I was always chasing money. I was always very much, I want to create a business that makes me money, that gives me freedom. That was all my plan was. Now, however sort of cheesy this sounds, the goal is a lot We bigger. love cheesy. We <laughs> love cheesy. <laughs> and again, when people used to say this, they used to be like, yeah, whatever. Like, you just want to make money. Like, you don't want to do this. But as a dad now, like hearing that suicide is the biggest killer of young people, that scares the hell out of me. Like to feel, and I speak to parents that have lost their sons. Um, like one of them was sort of, know 14 and they say to me like the hardest thing is that we didn't even know what pain they were going through and they couldn't do anything about it and that eats me up inside and I feel like if that ever happened to my my kids I don't know how I would live with that um so like they're young so I've got like 10 years until they probably you know maybe less than that to, to they get to that point so this is the whole sort of mission that I'm on. So when I, the point I'm trying to make is I'm very patient. Like I know this isn't going to happen overnight. Um, but yeah, I want to do more. I want to build up my audience when it comes to mental health. Um, I've got a book, another plug coming out in October, um, which again, no expectations for that. It's through a publishing company called Trigger Press Publishing that links with Sure Mind Foundation. So it's a mental health um, publishing company. So does that, does that have a name yet or is it? It's called Man Up, Man Down. Okay. Yeah, so again, I wrote, it's funny. I wrote, I wrote Man Up, Man Down about three years ago. Didn't do anything with it. I wanted to self-publish it. Then Adam Shaw, he, he read one of my articles two years ago. It was like, I'm thinking of starting this publishing company and this foundation. I'm a very successful guy, suffered with OCD. And, you know, I Googled him and I was just like, don't really, I don't know if I trust this. Um, so I was going to self-publish it. Then a year ago, he came knocking again and it was like, look at what we're doing. And Sure Mind were behind a big petition that got 100,000 signatures to make mental health compulsory in schools. Um, 
and he was everywhere. He was on like Sky News and stuff. And I thought, well, this guy's, this guy's actually, um, you know, and I met with him and his whole vision was just everything he was saying was just like ticking all of my boxes. Like, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. So yeah, long story short, I then started to work with a publishing company, which again, it's a nice business model. Every book that they sell funds money into the foundation. So it's like the books that are sold is funding money into the foundation. Um, and the more books that sell, the more it gets out. Then. Exactly. And they're really good. I mean, and it, but it's funny. I wrote this book and then I sent it to the editor from the publishing company and they were like, yeah, the first chapter's good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, brutal. And um, no, I and he's down for the cat. <laughs> Damn, I completely agreed with them because the first chapter was the story. And then there was like nine chapters after, which was like very self-help guru kind of angle. And he was like, I want to feed that through, but all through your story. So then it's completely been rewritten. So it's kind of like the whole, kind of what we've gone into here, but a lot more detail about meeting Anne, like, you know, what happened after that and just the whole um, process from it. And then talking about masculinity, like my dad's battle with masculinity, um, my granddad, like 93, still alive, I've seen him cry recently, but, you know, never cried throughout my dad's funeral. He lost his wife three weeks later. So my dad was an only child. So my granddad lost his only son, then his wife three weeks later um, to cancer and um, been through war, seen his friends get, you know, killed in front of him. And he's at that, never, ever seen him cry. Stiff upper lip. Yeah. yeah, whereas my dad was brought up more from my nan and my dad was very sensitive you know, I'd kiss my dad goodnight, I'd hug my dad goodnight, he was very sensitive, but then if I had a bad game at football, I'd know about it. Does that make sense? It, like my dad was very, this is what goes into in the book, my dad was very sort of, is this a man, like my granddad, or am I a man by being There's a lot of conflict there in terms yeah. of... Yeah, and again, I've had that battle of, you know, am I being a strong man by bringing up my kids this way, or am I being a better dad by bringing them up this way? So yeah, the book's really about that as well. Mm. I think one of the things Isaac and I both found um, particularly sort of moving with your story so far is the the way you've managed to invest your your time and your energy into something really beneficial, mm. you know, in spite of what you've gone through. You know, if your journey so far says anything, it's that it's to keep things in perspective. You know, you've you've had this tragic event as a kind of high watermark in your life, you know, this anchoring point that you've had to rebuild around, you know, and so, so it kind of puts... I would imagine life's more trivial problems into perspective a little yeah. bit, you know, um, and appreciate what we do have mm. more when it's when it's here, and and express that gratitude as often as you can. I think that's incredibly important. But I think it's something we could all do a lot more of. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I don't want to go into the whole story, but because we haven't got time. But um, my brother—I don't know if you know—my brother had an accident um, just over a year ago. So I, I got married in Italy. My brother was my best man. Um, we come back from Italy um, on the Saturday. On Tuesday, he went to work. He's a surveyor. And um, 15 kilogram steel fell from a hoist. I landed on his head and, yeah, fractured his skull, left him brain damaged. And um, I have no idea how he survived, to be honest with you. And everyone who saw his brain scans were like, he's either going to be, you know, very bad, very brain damaged, or he won't survive. And he's now home, sort of mum's, you know, living at home with my mum. She's she's amazing. She's like his full-time carer now, but she's she's honestly amazing. And he's the same brother that I had before the accident. He's just lost a lot of physical ability. 
Um, but with physio that he's getting, he's getting better and better every single day. And there's no limits with where he might go. Um, and he keeps surprising everyone. Everyone's like, you're never ever going to do this. You're never ever going to do this. And he keeps just... Don't ever tell someone they can't do something. Yeah, you know? and like, again, he's just so driven. But again, going back to perspective, like my dad, and so many people will hear this and I did it. My dad woke me up. I was like, you know, I need perspective. I need to live the life that I want to live. I, I quit my job because of that, because I didn't want to sort of live a quite a dull life. And then you find yourself just, again, you know, getting back to normality and living life. And then when it happens, what happens to my brother is just, again, it's a massive wake up call that again, he just went to work and then that happens. And um, so, yeah, I'm always, always now just trying to put things into perspective. And I feel through all of that adversity, it just builds strength. Like I always say now, I always say this, I don't know how I would be if something happened to my my kids or Amy or my mum or my brother, but you know, throw anything at me, I reckon I could handle it because of what I've gone through. And perspective's key as well because there's there's so many people that have gone through a lot worse than me. So I'm not saying that, they, that, that you know, I'm like my brother survived. There was a lot of people that we met who their brothers died or their kids died. And um, so I'm very, very, I'm very focused on perspective, always putting things into perspective, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a, you know, you're rolling with the punches, um, but life goes on, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think, like you say, you either go one way or the other. Like you either decide that I'm going to go down this route of staying like this, or you come out on a more positive um, side of it. And yeah, I think anyone who's done well, and I say done well, it depends on your judgment of done well, but everyone that I admire has a story that, you know, comes from adversity a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, yeah, that pre- pretty much brings us to a close for this week's episode. But um, one thing we like to do before we let our guests leave um, is sort of ask for that little soundbite, the little uh, snippet of wisdom, um, mainly to share on Instagram. We are, <laughs> we're not going to lie. Shameless. <laughs> Just looking for content. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you, if you could share something uh, that would perhaps help people get through the, um, the, the day-to-day life and, and would really help them out, that'd be great. And it has mm. to be quotable. Hmm. It can't be my quote though. Like, oh yeah, it can. Oh, I've got to think of a quote. I'm gonna, I'm gonna butcher a quote instead. There's a, <laughs> there's a good book called Man's Search for Meaning, um, and it says that a man, I'm gonna butcher this completely. A man without a meaning to live. It's something along those lines. Right? <laughs> so what I'm basically trying to say is, without meaning, that's it. Without meaning, you have no meaning to live. Okay, so. Um, it's a really good book and it opened up my eyes and I see a lot of people in despair and, and, you know, suicidal and they reach that point. And what I always say it comes down to is having no meaning, like having no purpose. So I feel like my dad got to a point where all of his meaning was just, he'd lost all perception of, of what his meaning was. So he didn't know that we loved him. He didn't know like what he had to look forward to in the future. Um, so for me, I have to always think about what's meaningful in my life and that purpose. So like this mental health stuff keeps me, gets me up in the morning and gets me going. Um, like my boys, again, gets me up, gets me going in the morning. And I, 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 I you're going to have to dig that quote out. Don't use the quote that I just used. Cause definitely going to use that quote. <laughs> <laughs> but the whole point that I'm trying to make, and this is the most important point that I always say is you have to have some meaning because otherwise like motivation. There's the quote. You have to have some meaning. That's yeah. golden, man. Yeah, there you go. Paul McGregor. Yeah. Um, 
Um, motivation. Like I always, I used to struggle with motivation. And then as soon as there's a good book would start with why by Simon Sinek, as soon as you attach why to why you're doing it, it makes you really get motivated again. So it can, for me, everything comes down to having some meaning in your life. And I put a post out the other day saying, um, it was, a, it was a picture of my boys and it said like, what, what keeps you going? And everyone kind of had one reference point. Like these have kept me through the dark times. Whether it's some people had like pets, like their dogs, or um, you know, or their or their work, or um, a family member, or a friend, or you know, kids themselves. It's it's just you have to have that meaning to keep going. Brilliant. And uh, and where can we find you on the the sort of various social medias? You know, do your little plug everywhere. No. Yeah. <laughs> Gonna have to narrow it down um, a bit. Instagram is pro- Instagram and Facebook are probably the best places. So Instagram is pmcgregor.com, uh, p-m-c-g-r-e-g-o-r-c-o-m. And the same with Facebook or just search for Paul McGregor. Um, and your YouTube? Yeah, YouTube. If you Again, if you just search YouTube for Paul McGregor, you should be able to find both channels as well. He's the blonde guy with very white teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. I've been drinking a lot of coffee recently. Yeah. Um, so, so you've got a Facebook group as well, have you? Yeah, so the Facebook group, I've got two. There's one called Become a Better Man, which is more targeted at men, which grew to about 4,000 members, but it's not as active anymore. And then a smaller one called Speak Your Strength, which is more about um, mental health, which I think is about 400 members, but it's very, very active. And um, it's growing quicker than I expected. So now I'm trying to get more people in there that can help because it's a bit overwhelming at the moment. Like people just always posting in there. Um, so yeah, they're the two Facebook groups, which I think is great as well. Um, so we're looking, um, we've got My Mind Apparel that's active now, is it? Uh, nearly, should be okay. soon. Okay, and then a book coming out soon as well. Yeah. Okay, that's that's great. Um, find us on Instagram too um, at Life Are We There Yet, um, and check out our website. Cool. And if any of you are feeling particularly generous, um, and if even if you're not, we'll just think of this as your sort of good deed for the day. Uh, go on over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It's the same thing, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> and leave a little review or a star rating. Um, the star rating is you know traditional, so it's out of five stars, and that's the only acceptable example of the amount of stars you can give. Um, <laughs> no, I joke, but four is a minimum. Um, so Paul, with that in mind, thank you so much for joining no us. No worries, thank you for having it's me. It's been, been really, pleasure. really brilliant. Isaac? You're both very good hosts. Oh, yeah. what are you doing? We'll get you, we'll get you back on, just to say <laughs> that. Um, <laughs> that's the quote. Yeah. The quote there. <laughs> yeah. Paul McGregor said we were really... <laughs> that's just going to be my bio from now yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Very good host, Paul McGregor. <laughs> um, Isaac, thank you, as always. Thank and you. as always, just keep plodding along. Goodbye. So guys, please let me know what you think of that episode. Leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Don't forget to check out those two amazing young budding entrepreneurs at Life Are We There Yet? And once again, just a huge thank you to you for listening to this podcast. Once again, giving me your time, whether you're in the gym, whether you're walking, whether you're whatever you're doing, whether you're walking around the street like I am at the moment, just thinking how busy and noisy is London, but I appreciate your time. Speak soon.